Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast. I'm excited for our guest today. His name is Neil Redding. He is the CEO and co and founder of Redding Futures. And one of the things we've been talking about is that especially during COVID, there's been so much upset, there's been so much disruption, and everybody's trying to read the tea leaves and figure out how to prepare for what's next. And Neil has a decidedly different approach, and it's an approach that I think is so practical, so accessible, and so uh, grounding that I wanted to bring him on here to talk about it today. So uh, first, Neil, thanks for taking the time. You're you're calling in from uh, from Portugal, right? That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. And uh, thanks to everyone listening. Yes. Uh, my wife and I came to Lisbon early October from New York City just to you know, take a break from everything, honestly, and just get a little space and perspective. And it's definitely been delivering that. So we're grateful to be able to do it. And yeah, thanks again yeah. for, um, well, for uh, making this conversation happen, Sean. Looking forward to it. Of course, of course. I've been fascinated with your approach to uh, what your method is called the Near Futures Framework, yeah? Correct, yes. And what I've found is it's such a straightforward, intelligent access to being able to be predictive about the future without any kind of uh, thought to, to be psychic and be able to mm -hmm. engage your clients and, and a whole range of different businesses around anticipating where things will be in the next three to five years. So I'd love just to hear your take and you explain a little bit about how this came about and just a little bit more about your approach to, to innovating for the future. Sure. Thanks. There's a lot, there's a lot in there, right? So how it came about and sort of yeah, how it, I, I, how I, it I set you up to go anywhere yeah, you want. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, let me say, I guess let me just introduce myself a little bit uh, more before I dive into it. So, I mean, I, I grew up professionally as a software engineer. So I studied computer science and philosophy in college and then wrote software professionally for many years. And so I have this grounding uh, really driven by just passion for making software and making machines do things that informs the rest of the innovation work that I, that I do. So it's kind of the first half of my career, I was doing that software engineering. And then the past nine, 10 years or so, I realized I wanted to do more creative strategic work, applying this technology understanding and, and um, passion for what's possible enabled by uh, technology, particularly software, also hardware, but um, applying that to business problems and just sort of creating the world uh, the way we envision it being and, and bringing that approach of what's possible and experimenting with, with what's possible. So without, I can certainly come back and talk more about how I got here, but the near future framework to provide a quick overview is a, we talk about it as a, a lean, a streamlined, a minimum strategic framing, if you will, of the coming three to five years, which is how we describe what the near future is, next three to five years, that is as a framework uh, lean and minimal and, and biased towards action, right? So instead of creating um, some something that is sort of large and, and heavyweight and very deep and broad as a as a strategic framework, which often comes out of large scale 
innovation engagements or visioning or strategy engagements with large consultancies, whether they're McKinsey or IDEO or um, Deloitte or like any other amazing, you know, large scale firm, what we're really trying to do um, grounded again in this um, passion for building things, it's come out of my history, is um, understand enough about what's coming in the next three to five years, which is really grounded in what we can already see emerging today, right? So as you said, it's not about being psychic or even prognostication, it's about understanding the trajectories of change, both in terms of technology, but also in terms of culture, in terms of even geopolitical shifts, in terms of business model evolution, um, understanding these trajectories of change and then creating hypotheses that can quickly be prototyped and tested um, by building things, either building software, sometimes just straightforward market research, sometimes um, paper prototypes as, as people in software um, development call them, but um, very focused on this agile iterative approach to creating hypotheses and then testing them. And, and then the last piece really is partnering with our clients. As you said, we can talk specifics across different industries, but partnering with our clients in a way that allows them to experience what we deliver as a kind of innovation service or innovation partnership rather than something that you, you know, sort of big bang hire a, a seven plus figure firm, you know, to do a large engagement once in a while and say, we've, we've done our innovation for a few years. We want this to be something that that um, is an ongoing partnership, a subscription model really um, with our clients so that um, quarterly, if not more often during COVID because things are changing so rapidly, but at least quarterly ongoingly, we meet with our clients and look at the hypotheses that have come out of the near future framework or um, look at what the results are, um, look at the data that's coming in from those tests of hypotheses and then recalibrate and, and sort of tweak uh, the dials, if you will, on all of those uh, prototypes that are in market and being tested so that we can then ongoingly refine them and collectively uh, provide this uh, as an innovation service for our clients. So happy to go into any more detail in any of these. We can talk about examples or what, where do you want to go next with well, that? The first, the first thing I really love is that you're taking, you've taken a long view about how ideas and, and capacities and technologies come into our everyday life. And, you know, as we're talking, I got really clear, like anything you can actually see where things are going to go based on emerging technology now, and actually just graft that onto whatever industry you might be in to get some indication about where your industry is going to be. Meaning that now you're really advocating for taking on an ongoing inquiry and an ongoing approach and new perspective about how we're going to consistently be ahead rather than, I think what happens to a lot of companies is they get caught a little flat footed. Right. And suddenly there's this rush to keep up with some, some new disruptor in the industry or some outside startup that upends a business model. You're really talking about ongoingly be out ahead of that. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and some of your listeners may be familiar with uh, the McKinsey uh, originated horizons model where there are three horizons that businesses that they advocate at McKinsey, businesses engage with these different three horizons uh, all at the same time and, and sort of roughly summarized, uh, those three horizons are H1, which is the current business model. Essentially, it's just um, optimizing the current operations within the existing business model. Horizon two 
is adjacent business models or tweaks to the existing business model that can start to bring in new customers, connect with them in different ways and so on. And then horizon three is, you know, again, they uh, advocate that all businesses engage with, um, with the market and with their business in all three horizons at the same time. But horizon three is looking past anything to do with the existing business model, you know, to what may be possible further out, right? And so really what, uh, when we talk about near future framework, we're looking at technology that already exists that where we can see how it may evolve over the next three to five years, but it can be put into practice today. And, you know, when we were talking earlier, um, perhaps an overused example, but it really helps uh, to, when we talk with prospective clients, help them understand the, the kind of um, opportunities we're talking about being able to take advantage of Uber, like everyone can probably remember uh, the first time that they discovered Uber as a, as a service on their mobile phone that would allow them to get from A to B, right? I certainly remember um, this aha moment. It was, it was a kind of amazing moment because it was three years around 2010 or 2011, I think that Uber showed up and that, so the iPhone mm -hmm. had been around smartphones with all the actually enabling technology for Uber had been around for several years, location services, sort of cloud-based apps, the, the app store in general, the ability to um, identify where your customer is, where, or where the rider is, where the driver is, bring them together. Mobile payments had been basically sorted out. People were comfortable making payments, but so when Uber created that initial ride hailing service, none of that technology was late breaking or even, or close to bleeding edge. Like it had been uh, commercialized and even commoditized. It was in everybody's hands already. You know, everybody that had a smartphone and granted it took many more years before, yeah. you know, 90% of people to have smartphones. But the point is that they just saw the Uber creators, you know, uh, a way to use existing technology that hadn't been seen before. Right. And so they, that came out of, I don't know for sure, but I mean, it certainly could have come out of, you know, experimenting and just looking at, wow, location services this is pretty amazing. Mobile payments, you know, people can pay for anything wherever they are. What could this make possible? They could also be looking at the pain points, right? Which interestingly as a New Yorker at the time, when I first used Uber, I realized, wow, like they removed a whole bunch of pain that I wasn't even aware of, right? Like how painful is right. it? As a New Yorker, like I lived in Brooklyn, and if any New Yorkers listening to to this, right, I mean, you'll, you'll get what we're talking about. Back in the day, like ten years ago, a cab would often just be like, you know, would say, "Where are you going?" and say, "Brooklyn," and be like, "Nah, no, I can't take it." Yeah. You know, they just didn't want to. Nope. Keep going. Um, it wasn't legal, but they just didn't feel like it, right? Because they just had so much more business, just demand in Manhattan. Um, but there is, but Uber solved this. Right. I mean, there, there was always a predictable way to get rides, you know, to and from Brooklyn. Um, they knew that the, the drivers knew they would get rides um, as a rider. And this is, again, I didn't mention this a minute ago, but the ability to see uh, a photo of the driver, the name, eventually the rating, you know, some social proof about the safety and reliability of the driver, huge horse. With taxis in New York, you never know who your driver is. You just get into it and you don't know, like, is this going to be safe or not? Right. Um, Leap of faith. The deal with having, you know, not having to um, exchange cash 
was huge, right? I mean, I, I never thought of that as a pain point, you know, before Uber, but then just being able to get out of the car and not have to deal with money at all, it was just like this incredible sense of freedom. Not to fetishize Uber, but it's just, the point is, that whole service and that capability that was world-changing, really, um, came out of looking at what are the technologies that are still relatively new, but ubiquitous, right? They're in everybody's hands now um, at, in 2010, right? And this is how Uber was created. And so we wanna provide that ability to our clients, sort of looking at their existing business models, or you know, if you're a startup like Uber, you're just sort of looking at a particular sphere of human activity, like, and examining sort of what, where are the pain points? Like, where is there friction that doesn't need to exist? When I say friction, I mean, um, difficulty getting something done, right? Where there are too many steps or it's just too complicated, right? So um, yeah, we could talk a bit about uh, examples like that across different um, industries, across different businesses that we at Ready Futures have worked with, if you want. Yeah, well, I mean, in the, the before we jump into that, I think one of the really great things about, well, as you say, great things, but also if you're a, if you're a business, also a threatening thing is, now that we have all of these, we have Uber, we have Airbnb as these, you know, kind of landmark examples. Right. But we've also just got a whole ecosystem flooded with startups. Just, you know, disruption is becoming, coming faster and faster. There's more and more people kind of waking up to how to take existing competencies and core functions of technology and and mix and match them to address any number of areas of life. So if you're a company, you definitely have to be proactive here. And you can take an example like Uber and just graft it onto, you know, if I was in banking, okay, great. Here's what they did in the, in the arena of, of, of ground transit. Okay. Sure. What are the pain points I've got here in banking? What are the, inefficiencies what are the things what are the core competencies i have out there that i can already see and how could somebody go and repackage those in mm -hmm. a way that would make banking easier and now we start to get in this very creative process of really being able to see three five six seven years down the road and i just love that example going back to well what did the iphone have on it that was already there and what was predictable Right. That more and more people would have mobile phones. Mobile technology was not going anywhere. It was only going to increase. You're going to have faster speeds, better location accessibility. Payment systems were going to be more secure. And suddenly there's this whole world that opens up that if you're proactive, you could be a leader. Right. And um, one of the areas I know that you've been focused on quite a bit is in the world of retail. Yes. Which, uh, especially right now during COVID, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start. But... Um, but given your framework, you do. <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to hear more about For sure. how you've been approaching retail. Yeah. No. So thank you. And um, anybody, anybody who follows the work that I do is it's uh, it, it's probably the most, how I say, most out front um, or sort of obvious industry that that I've been interested in the last few years, uh, maybe the last five years, as I've moved from you know having shifted again, jumping back to my history, having shifted from doing software engineering into creative strategic work for brands, you know, via advertising, and then actually at Gensler, this global architecture firm starting around five years ago, started up digital experience design there and looking at how 
physical spaces as design could be part of digital ecosystems, you know, part of um, a holistically integrated experience between uh, retail touch points on a mobile device, on the web, you know, in a physical store, how can these things all operate together and seamlessly and holistically for a brand and, and in the service of the customer. Um, but really, I think what's most interesting to me about retail, because you know, a number of years into it, I, I realized like why this seems a little wonky or a little um, out of line or maybe like lacking soul in some way. Like the, I had one of these moments where it's like, is this really what I care so much about? But I realized that as someone who's always been interested in humanity, sort of how humans work and what we care about and how that shows up in our lives, retail as understood really broadly, which uh, at Near Future of Retail, which is a publication on Medium that I co-created with a friend, like at Near Future of Retail, we talk about retail as being this whole realm of everything that has something to do with things that are bought and sold, right? And almost every physical thing in our environment, certainly when we're indoors, right, is something that can be bought and sold, something that someone that we're out aligned with, if it's a home or a workplace, you know, spent our hard-earned money on, our valued resources to, to get in exchange, right? And certainly if it's a, a personal possession, it therefore represents something that we either semi-consciously, unconsciously, or often consciously value enough, right, to exchange money for. And so because of that, retail is, is super interesting at a, at a human level, I find. And kind of going back to the example you were talking about with banking, um, and it's not even exactly, I want to say, uh, possibilities that are directly enabled by technology, but um, so many business models, certainly financial services, consumer banking, credit cards, um, retail, et cetera, have been suffering in recent years, I think, because they their business models have wound up becoming, um, I think, semi-consciously, but just a, as a result of being optimized for purposes of the business rather than for the customer, have, have become these business models that are yeah, just all about what we as a business care about, right? Versus what the customer yeah. cares about. And so I'm gonna get back to retail in a second because I, wanna, I wanted to address what you're talking about with banking. Um, yeah. The thing about, I mean, when we, I don't want to lose this thought, when we look at banks, right? I mean, every one of us is a customer of one or more banks, right? And when we look at their kind of service design, right? In other words, like, what do they offer us and how do they talk about it and how do we engage with it? We very quickly, with almost every bank, or every financial services firm run up against, like, how do I map what I want and what I care about to what they're describing, right? There's just this disconnect. It's like, here's our list of, you know, different consumer checking accounts with their features, right? And here's our list of different, uh, I don't know, credit cards with their features. And, and all of this has been improving a lot in recent years because it's kind of had to because tech startups have been forcing it. But banks and I think retailers and, and all, um, businesses that are that have been around for a while, legacy businesses, but that are really um, doing well and doing better in this economy are focusing on articulating their value proposition in terms of what people actually care about, right? Like banks have started to say, let us help you get your first home or let us help you achieve your retirement goals right. or let us help you 
you know, buy that next thing that you want, right? So their services are becoming much more aligned around individual goals and what matters to, to, to people, right? And so, again, like I said, this is not specifically um, kind of um, tangential in a way or orthogonal to um, what emerging technology enables, but um, it's related in the sense that, and I'm gonna bring all this together in a second, Emerging technology, you know, certainly the smartphone, but sensors in physical spaces and even wearable technology, and we're going to see a lot in the 20s, right? This decade, I'm getting used to calling it the 20s. Um, <laughs> so much is going to be happening in terms of technology that gets more and more personal, right? And because it's more personal, um, both wearable hardware, in-pocket hardware like smartphones, but also machine learning and AI, which we can come back to, and, and data that's gathered about our behavior, a lot of it is scary, but a lot of it is really promising in terms of, again, being allowing these services to be very focused and efficient about just fulfilling on what we care about rather than what they want us to care about, you know, or what they're, what they're offering. So um, coming back to retail, COVID, yes. I mean, the, the huge, the way I think of COVID most simply put, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of impacts, but um, Physical, physical presence, right? At the core, retail was challenged to the extent that um, it required physical presence between customer and store, customer and store associate, or even employee and employee, right? To broaden it to just business yep. generally, but businesses and certainly retail have, you know, if they depended on, or to the extent they depended on physical co-presence, that was the, the the biggest area of risk, right? Everything sort of followed from that. And all of the scrambling in restaurants, certainly, as well as retail and other businesses has been around, how can we make this physical presence dependency go away? Or how can we mitigate that, right? How can we start to be present with each other um, or have our products and services be present, you know, be accessible to people across distance. And so that's been, I've been giving a talk the last few months on they're called the end of distance. And it's really about how uh, specific technology, certainly augmented reality, certainly um, what's emerging is kind of virtual reality on a smartphone screen that doesn't require uh, a face-worn headset, but allows for the rendering, you know, the real-time simulation of being in a physical store, being in a showroom, which is really interesting territory. I'm working closely with a startup that does that. Um, but essentially allowing us to be, to feel or have the experience of being co-present with spaces, with people like you and I are doing right now over Zoom, right? With things, you know, that we're shopping for that we can bring into our space using mobile augmented reality, like furniture, like housewares, things like this. Um, we can go deeper into that, but we talk a lot about all of this on nearfutureofretail.com. Um, so I think maybe to sum up this, this long rant, I, I would say that, <laughs> I really, I think the, I love retail because it's, it's about the, this sort of like tangible manifestations of what we value, you know, like being together with beautiful spaces and beautiful things and things we need that fulfill our, you know, our needs and desires. And also there's a very human element too, right? I think like a lot of us are missing the serendipitous um, joys that we get from being out in public spaces, including stores, right? Including commercial contexts, you know, especially 
I mean, I was gonna say, especially those of us that live in cities, but I don't think that's even true. I think people everywhere, you know, maybe small towns even more, like love coming into town and, and just running into people at the store, right? At the supermarket, like it's just, uh, it, it's a social thing. And so, um, yeah, I could talk for hours about sort of how COVID has accelerated, and, and not COVID per se, but I mean, how we've responded to COVID, right? By keeping our physical distance has accelerated our investment as a species, as a set of industries in technologies that help us bridge the distance, you know, so. Yeah, and I mean, uh, there's some things that you pointed out to me that I didn't know that maybe people listening to this do, but there are already existing augmented reality technologies where you can see if a piece of furniture fits into your place. Oh, yes. And you can measure things out and and things that Ikea is doing. But, and again, it goes right back to had we backed up three to five years ago, you have been able to forecast that here's some core competencies. We have emerging AR and VR. I've got a phone. Uh, you know, as a former photographer, I, I spent a lot of time helping companies with their e-commerce, which if you go back to the beginning of that was, you know, quite one dimensional now just to think of a single product being shown and shooting it at a couple different angles. Now you're working with startups that are creating entire virtual spaces where you can go through and shop and mix and match pieces and try things on. And it's from that perspective of the the near futures framework, that kind of emerges as self-evident that that would be a natural progression. And you could actually foresee that when you say, yeah, create hypotheses. Like, well, what would that look like if we created something like that? What would it look like? What would a business model be? And I mean, I'm actually go, I'm tempted to go find some Ikea furniture just to try out their, their what's interface in, now. What's interesting, yeah. I mean, so Ikea particularly has been um, rather out, out front, out in front, you know, in, in terms of, uh, allowing you to put their products in your space uh, digitally in an augmented reality way, in a simulated way. For a number of years, like Ikea Place came out, it may have been three three years ago now, actually, I think the first, um, when the first version of iOS that had what Apple calls AR kit, which is um, software that, that makes augmented reality easier for developers to implement on their phone. Um, and shortly thereafter, Google, Google's AR core, the same capability. So this has been around for a while. And in fact, being able to put a fairly realistic rendering of a 3D piece of furniture that's photorealistic um, that, that you can set on a horizontal surface like a floor in your space and look at it and walk around it you know, with your phone and, and have a sense of, okay, this is what the colors look like. This is what the shape looks like. This is kind of how it fits into my room. That experience has actually been possible and and not just possible, like actual on phones for quite a few years. I mean, at least five years. So it's had this, um, you know, going back to sort of looking for, I mean, you do, five years ago, I guess it was an early signal, right? Uh, of what, mm-hmm. what was coming, but it's been coming for many years, I guess is the, is the bottom line. So. I just want to use that example to underscore the fact that what we're talking about with with the near future is not futurism. Again, it's not prognostication. It's not prediction. It's looking at what already exists today that maybe is not being leveraged in ways that it might be leveraged. And so uh, connecting those possibilities with 
existing aspects of a business model where there may be pain points that, that need to be solved or where there may be sort of potential disruption on the horizon from another business and connecting these dots, right? With, okay, we, these are the technologies that we see. These are the shifts in, again, in culture, in, uh, in health, you know, this year pandemic's been a huge thing, but geopolitical shifts as well. Like what are, and connecting dots and coming up with hypotheses that can then be tested. And so, um, yeah, it's a very, I think as you said at the outset, it's a very practical way of engaging with uh, the near future rather than, rather than prediction. So certainly I personally love it. I'm driven by it as a practice um, that is grounded in making and experimenting, you know, and, and also I love it as someone who cares about helping the world be a better place and helping people fulfill on what they want to realize more effectively, you know, um, whether they're business leaders, you know, which are the clients that we uh, look after, you know, executives who are responsible for evolving their business and not just surviving COVID, but thriving in the coming few years, you know, and what is it going to take for their businesses to actually succeed at that? Um, but also, yeah, I mean, just at the level of humanity, right? I mean, I think COVID, many people have said this year with COVID, it's like, yeah, if you're not impressed with how humanity has responded to COVID, like there's climate change waiting in the wings, you know, there's like other even much <laughs> bigger issues that we have to solve. And um, what would I say? I mean, as a dress rehearsal for solving larger problems, uh, you might say COVID, you know, we've I suppose it's been mixed sort of how humanity has responded to it, um, but hopefully we're learning, right? That what works and what doesn't, and perhaps maybe more importantly, how to collaborate, you know, new ways of collaborating yeah. that, that across, across ideological lines, across national lines. Um, and, you know, we're still very much in the middle of it. I think, you know, a year from now, it's gonna be very interesting to see like how we collaborated or not across national boundaries. Um, around vaccine development and sharing and distribution and and um, well, I mean, look, that, that. that's anyway. the other part of all. The that other part of this is it's so easy just to focus on new technologies, technologies that are at the forefront. It's it actually gets into far more complex aspects like what are ascendant trends, descendant trends. And of course, right now during yeah. COVID, I mean, it's exposed so many gaps. And, you know, one of the things we tend to forget is oftentimes identifying what's not working can be a huge source of insights about where opportunities might lie. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, so if we take a look at, we obviously have emerging technologies and capacities that those technologies have but then we have this whole uh, kind of cultural zeitgeist shifting. And then we have even uh, probably a rapid shift in what consumers themselves are looking for across the board. So if, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, sure. Of course, it's going to be hard it. to come up with a, a, some, go some golden answer here. But what are some of the big trends and some of the big technologies that you've got your eyes on that you can kind of see are going to impact things at, a, at kind of a macro level. Sure. So we haven't really talked much in this conversation yet about AI and machine learning. And you, you certainly, right. you can't avoid uh, those acronyms or those terms, you know, in the 
in the daily tech news, certainly, or even probably in the daily mainstream news or just at least business news, right? And that's they're they're everywhere, almost to the point of being part of the ether or the atmosphere in the sense that um, it's no longer a question of, you know, if you're building anything that incorporates any kind of software, which is to say, if you're building anything, any business, right? I mean, it is even the oldest legacy businesses are highly dependent on software now. But the point is that software that doesn't leverage artificial intelligence and within artificial intelligence, machine learning is, is not competitive. And it certainly will not be competitive in the next few years. And just to put it really simply, um, the way I think about um, probably the most important dimension of what machine learning makes possible, and it certainly makes possible all kinds of things from face filters on social media, facial recognition is largely driven by machine learning, being able to recognize patterns and so on, like, oh, those are eyes, that's a nose, that's a mouth, that's a human face. Now I can know where to put the horns or the antlers or the makeup or, you know, everything else that we love with facial recognition. Whatever filter comes out. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so, but that's a great way of, of, I think, thinking about what machine learning makes possible. It, it allows for the easy, not easy, but I mean, the automatic surfacing of patterns, right? So human faces yeah. can be recognized as faces because there are certain patterns in the geometry of a face, right? Um, there are many other realms. And I think in terms of thinking about what's possible, a lot of what we do when we're in a near future framework engagement is this is naturally what humans do anyway, right? If we start looking for patterns like, oh, the, we did this and this was the outcome. We did it a few times, the outcome was consistently this. So that's the interesting pattern. Like what should be, what should we learn from that? What can we do with that, right? And, and hypothesis-driven experimentation is very much like this. Like you want to uh, set yourself up for whenever you're engaging in a, in a, going from an hypothesis to an experiment to analyzing the results, set yourself up as the experimental team, if you will, you know, with the ability to capture and measure and analyze data that comes from that experiment, right? And so the more data you capture, the more you can um, make use of it in the context of a machine learning model, which again, will automatically, among other things, look for patterns in that data, right? And be able to surface, um, yeah, interesting patterns that could then be, uh, action or, you know, action can be taken on them. Now, bringing it back to your question about, um, this is actually the kind of the thought process we engage in. So you're getting a little look at, at how mm -hmm. we apply all of this in the near future framework engagement. But um, you were asking about um, what do I see emerging over the, the coming few years? I think um, we could talk about specific technologies beyond AI and machine learning. I mean, there are various sensors. I mean, more and more, there are new sensors being built into smartphones, which we could talk about. There are sensors that are showing up in physical spaces. I think post COVID, you know, by next summer, we're going to see as we start going back into physical stores, I mean, uh, a lot of new ways physical spaces are going to be used, certainly in big cities like New York, where there's been massive shifts in how space is used, right? I mean, small fraction of office spaces being used as office spaces. I think a lot of those spaces are going to be outfitted and used in very interesting new ways. The mm -hmm. lens we would apply is, is if you assume that all of this technology and machine learning and sensors and so on makes it possible to, um, with people's permission, right? And that's a whole other area of privacy and, and mm -hmm. opt-in and everything. 
Um, but with people's permission, the ability to identify surface patterns in human behavior, right? And you see you see this happening more and more in mobile uh, mobile operating systems, right? Recent iOS, recent Android will say, ah, I mean, or even just apps like Google Maps, like they know where you tend to go every day and they say, hey, this might be your home, this might be your workplace, do you wanna label it as such? That kind of use case or that kind of capability, I think is, is going to enable all kinds of new services and businesses and business models that can be um, inferred or created from them. And so in this sense, um, I think I'm, rather than specifically making predictions, which I have said I'm less inclined to do, um, answering your question with a more general framing, right? Which is to say, uh, if we if we approach it in any business, right? Looking at, because businesses are made of people and human activities, right? So what are the activities that the humans in that business, whether they're customers or employees um, or managers, you know, what are the activities they engage in and sort of setting things up to be able to, to measure um, what the patterns are there and how they can then be um, optimized, how those patterns might surface new possibilities, new offerings um, from a business to a customer that, that hadn't been thought of before. I mean, this is a huge realm that I think is going to lead to a lot of interesting things. And um, in terms of retail and other sort of consumer side services, I mean, again, and this is, this is like, how would I say, is this the farmer like announcing the fact that the, I don't know, the, the horses left the stable, you know, a few months ago or whatever, but it's like, it's backward looking. And so it's, it's not, nothing profound to say that COVID has made it the case that physical presence is dangerous. Like we, we know this, right. But I think there are many businesses that are still late to the conversation of, well, so what, what does this mean? What are the implications of physical presence not being um, safe, which I think is still going to be the case for most of the next year, thanks mm -hmm. to COVID? Um, what are the implications of that physical space just not being, um, certainly for the next 12 months or so, but how are we going to make the best use of the physical space that we have, right? I mean, human activity almost entirely, certainly commercial activity takes place in human built spaces, right? But the right. way we use those spaces, I think is going to, and it has been over the past eight months, you know, shifting dramatically. If you ask me how Walmart's using its physical spaces, you know, for this is getting into retail, but like people may not know that actually they're expecting something like 30% of their holiday sales volume at Walmart to be fulfilled, right? Delivered to customers through these pop-up e-commerce um, buy online pick up and store kind of scenarios so this is huge for walmart which you know historically although they've been making great and effective investments into e-commerce still almost all of their fulfillment happens from customers coming into their superstores and, and going to physical shelves right. and picking picking the product off the shelf 30 percent now at least they're expecting this holiday to be ordered online and then picked up just like curbside or you just walk in and grab what you've, what you've already ordered so they're using their space differently is the point, right? And so I think um, in the next six, 12, 18 months, there's gonna be a lot of really interesting things happening in retail that are around using space differently. And 
a big part of that is using digital technology differently, right? So that, um, again, uh, I have a little bit of obsession with real-time 3D augmented reality, virtual reality. These technologies are advancing so rapidly now, and they have been really for five years, but COVID has made us like everyone from developers to shoppers to managers to everybody has been at home in front of their computers. And so we need to make, while we're making these physical spaces, I mean, many of them have just been left abandoned or just not used or closed temporarily, yeah. right? For the last eight months, but, but our computers are working overtime, right? And so people are collectively looking at how can we use digital technology to bridge this distance to, again, bring people and places and things into our space. So it's a long rant, but it, hopefully it makes sense as a set of related concepts. I'm really bullish on the next few years being huge for mobile augmented reality, particularly. I think eventually yeah. we know that um, Apple and various others, you know, have been working very, very hard. I think Apple's going to be the huge juggernaut uh, and, and sort of inflection point around face worn augmented reality, Apple glasses, as people in the industry sort of call them as a, as a sort of placeholder. Uh, but um, essentially what that means is that eventually photo real digital um, content, whether it's 2D layers or as we were talking about earlier with furniture and things, you know, uh, photo real 3D objects will be uh, layered into our space as we experience it looking around, but without having to hold up our phone, you know, between the face and the world, you know, like have it just be on our face and be able to look around and have that experience. And so that still seems sci-fi to many, many people. Um, frankly, it seems sci-fi to me as well. And I think about this stuff a lot. It really is coming in the next three to five years. So, and there are early examples of that already. So, um, maybe I'll stop there for now. Well, I mean, I think, so I think that, this, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the I think one of the pitfalls is that people attribute all of this to COVID, and right right now at a period of time where the world might occur to be shifting between a business owner's feet there might be an impulse just to ride this out and that right. in a year this will be over. But, you know, if you just take a long view of any history of business models, technology, social change, we have COVID, which is an accelerant, but this, these trends and these evolutions are happening at a faster rate regardless. Yes. No, and I mean, so some of this will be here to stay simply because of COVID, but these, these uh, progressions of technology are, like you say, the horse is out of the barn. Yes, no, and as you say, the, the word accelerant, I mean, Scott Galloway has been saying this for months, you know, COVID is not a change agent, it's an accelerant. Um, lately, he's been making this, uh, you know, again, these sort of in retrospect, obvious statements, but, you know, the performance of the various businesses of Amazon is just um, off the charts, right? In terms of, uh, it, you know, it seems like it was a business model designed for the pandemic, although of course it's been around for 25 years, right? But the insight that Amazon had and has been applying to everything is, is creating services that are resilient across all manner of disruptions, right? If you, again, if you, so one layer of abstraction is, okay, physical distance, physical presence, is dangerous, right? And this is the main takeaway from COVID is we need to keep distance, right? So what can we do yeah. given that we have to be distant from each other and also from spaces that, that we tend to frequent? Um, 
Um, but a, a sort of level out or a layer out of abstraction from that is um, creating resilience, not just resilience across the need to be physically present, right? But resilience across other dimensions as well. Like uh, what if you can't be connected or what if you're um, further apart or what if um, yeah, you're trying to order something that is only rarely ordered. I mean, there's many different problems I mean, without going into detail about sort of what Amazon has succeeded at solving for. But um, yeah, it's almost like if you were to design a business that was perfectly suited for this moment in terms of fulfilling, well, getting people things they need, right? Or want, it would be Amazon, right? Even though it's been around forever, it seems like, you know, like 25 years. So where do we go from that? I mean, I think, um, I do think that I mean, it's what, critical. What do you say to leaders now? Yeah, so, right. The And the answer to that question is, I mean, COVID will be over eventually, right? Sometime next year, hopefully, it's going to cease to be the number one concern in the immediate. However, I think the lessons that I hope we learn and I hope business leaders learn that, and that we're trying to, you know, as in our consulting um, work, help leaders learn is have to do with these with these realms of, of um, focusing on resilience, like looking at where where the fragility, where the um, constraints, where the vulnerabilities in a business model are, right, and so. You know, if we were to back up a year, if you were someone, you know, running Walmart, say, or if you were someone running any retail chain, it was almost um, impossible to see, right? Like in a blind spot, the idea that, you know, if someone had come to a major retailer, I don't know, just pick one, like Old Navy or Gap or Whole Foods or I don't know what, right? I mean, any any major retailer whose business is overwhelmingly driven by being in by people coming to their physical space a year ago and said, you know, what, what could possibly just sort of like disaster preparedness, right? Like what could possibly disrupt your business to the, you know, so that you would be making a small fraction of the daily top line revenue that you are now, right? Say cut 70% of your revenue out. I would imagine most executives couldn't even name what that would be a year ago, right? I had someone I was talking to today who's in a, uh, runs a tourism business in Portugal who said uh, they engaged in precisely this conversation, the leaders of their small sort of van-based tourism, like they have 20 vans uh, a year ago, and they thought war was the most likely disruptor of the majority of their revenue. They were thinking about, you know, what could disrupt the majority of our revenue? Of course. Um, but it didn't even occur to them, according to him, right? I believe it, that a pandemic would do this, right? So looking forward, right? So, you know, it's just like the, the TSA still 20 years or whatever, it's been after like someone tried to bring some liquid on a plane to make, you know, to, to formulate a bomb, we still can't carry liquid on a plane. So like, they're very good at preventing what's already happened, right? I mean, that's like the whole right approach so you know and as leaders we'll say okay we're, we're not going to be 
we, we can learn from COVID so that we won't um, be as reliant on how we use physical space or having our physical spaces be available to the public, right? I mean, we need to reduce our, our dependency or vulnerability around that. But what else is coming, right? And so we, given that we don't know, I mean, it was in the COVID and pandemic uh, implications of it were in a blind spot for almost every leader a year ago. Mm -hmm. What could that vulnerability or disruption in everyone's blind spot now be? You know, we don't know when it's coming. Maybe it's a year from now, maybe it's 10 years from now. But in terms of engaging with that, I think a good rule of thumb is look at every aspect of your existing business and also every aspect of, you know, your your customers or your business partners, if you're a B2B business, you know, and like, what are their, so what are the operational vulnerabilities, right? If you take away access to something that is part of the machine that makes it work, you know, will it survive? Like, can it keep working? But then also what are the vulnerabilities with respect to um, customer needs and desires, right? Whoever you're servicing, whether it's a business or a consumer, you know, what do they actually care about? What do they need? What do they want? And, you know, are you really servicing them in a, in most effective way, in the way that's most aligned with what really matters to them, right? Because if you're not, that's a disruption opportunity, right? I mean, the reality is that some yeah. third party business is gonna come in and do a better job or just pay attention to something that matters to your customer in a way that you're not. So, so a lot of the conversation that we that we have with our clients is around this particular area. It's like, are you really laser focused on what matters to the people that you're serving? Um, well, and I think that that highlights where some people would actually probably get themselves into a, a trap right now, which is, could you possibly create your business model to accommodate every contingency and every potential? you know, risk factor down the road. No, but if you just took those out, you could still look at how are you going to make your customer's experience better under a variety of conditions using technologies that are available and seen, and maybe they're in some analogous area that hasn't been, ap been applied to your industry yet. But boy, if you did, you'd have multiple avenues available so that whatever circumstances were to come, you could actually, your, your staff, your leadership tier, everybody would have their minds already oriented around looking through that particular prism. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, at the risk of repeating what we were saying earlier, I mean, this is, it's not about, I mean, imagining what's emerging in the future is great. It's important, right? When we talk about hypothesis-driven experimentation, Mm -hmm. You have to, I mean, there's infinite number of hypotheses or things you can imagine that you might want to test out right? and experiment or prototype with. Um, so you've got to narrow those down somehow. And that process is an imaginative um, exercise, right? But, um, yeah. but the real work that we want to engage with, uh, in with our clients is sort of roll up the sleeves and experiment, right? And these experiments need to themselves also be designed so that they can fail fast, they can quickly uh, produce some kind of outcome. If you're prototyping some new capability, say for your service um, or your product line, get that in the hands of prospective customers really quickly so that you can tell like, does this matter to them? And, and I'm 
far from the, the first person to be saying this. I mean, this is something that's been a best practice or in terms of how to engage with building something that people care about for years, but um, you can so quickly, certainly with software, but even, even experimental hardware, get something in the hands of prospective customers and test out, you know, does this actually matter? Do they care about this? And, um, and really every new app that comes out that gets any fraction does this, you know, you release something that is really minimal and um, to your point earlier, like it's not about trying to solve everything. It's like looking at one particular pain point. I mean, Airbnb, which is sort of on everybody's lips now as they're gonna go public any day, right? Started with a super, super simple value proposition. Like they were young guys, they're in San Francisco. They're like, they noticed huge influx to Moscone Center when there's, you know, uh, Greenforce or whatever the huge, sale, I think it was the Salesforce conference yeah. at the time, right? And um, hotels were over capacity, right? So they're like, we can just put on Craigslist that we've got, you know, air beds in our apartments, see if people want to stay here, you know? Absurdly simple for a company that's about to like go public at a valuation of 30 billion plus, right? But it's like that simple crazy hypothesis that led to that simple experiment. We're just going to post something on Craigslist and see if people show up. And of course, then they executed from there, right? I mean, anybody could just stop there. Yeah, like, it wow, probably just, had a few steps I, in between. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, they could have stopped there. A lot of people would just be like, wow, I just pocketed a few grand. That was fun on to the next thing. But then they actually made a business of it. So, but the point is like, that was a, a hypothesis that they tested and it worked out. And also it was super controversial. I mean, a lot of people are like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you crazy? Like no one's going to stay in strangers' homes. Like just like Uber, like no one's going to like take a ride from a stranger. But never mind, they already did. I mean, Airbnb was a bit more out there. Exactly, in exactly. In terms of a business model, right? Like staying in random people's homes. But um, but they solved for all that, right? They looked at progressively like, well, what's what's the concern people have? Oh, like... Hosts have a concern that strangers are going to damage their homes. Okay, we'll put insurance in place, you know, and then we'll have this sort of social rating system so that you and right, similar to what Uber had done already. And so progressively, they looked at what was working, what wasn't working, and put things in place to make, you know, to refine how Keep it works. Solving pain points. And then 10 years later, you've got something that actually is a global juggernaut, right? And of course, not like that just happens like accidentally or automatically i mean there's a lot of like um world-class thinking and imagination and passion and like uh incredible legal muscle because they've had to fight battles you know with jurisdictions and in new york city and all over the world last 10 years but point is that fundamentally it was about having a hypothesis about a pain point and then experimenting and iterating from there. And that's what we really hope to provide um, through the near future framework. That's the intention and it's working yeah. well so far. Uh, it's, so. it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant approach. And, and I think that it's something so practically applied, especially right now when, again, there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of unknowns about how we're going to come out of this particular year. Yes. And so um, look, uh, where can people reach out to you if they want to contact you? Yeah, um, so readingfutures.com is our website. Uh, there's a, a little bit of information there. You've heard more from me in this conversation that is on that site. The intention is really just to, right. to spark a conversation. You can reach out. We have a contact form there. 
you can find me on LinkedIn, Neil Redding. Um, and then in, if you're particularly interested in retail or the things we were talking about there, you can look at nearfutureofretail.com. Um, so those are the three main areas. And um, I'm also on Twitter, but a little bit less uh, prolifically. I mean, I, I share a lot on LinkedIn, so that's a good place to actually follow me and, and um, stay in touch with the kinds of things we're thinking about. Perfect, perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out today. Uh, thank you for uh, exposing us to all this great insight here. And uh, we look forward to see what's coming up next in the next year for, for Reading Futures. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks so much. It's been a great, uh, great conversation, great fun. Take care. We'll talk soon. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.